So, John, what's the weirdest thing you've ever got up to in a photo booth? Uh, lost the will to live, maybe? I had my passport stolen in Sweden one time with hours before my flight, and I had to race through Stockholm on a Sunday morning mm-hmm. to find a place where I could get a replacement passport photo so I could get a one-shot passport. And um, yeah, it was a very stressful morning, and consequently my passport photo for the past 10 years has been me looking like I just want the world to end. I was very hungover, very pissed off, and uh, yeah, stressed out. Great, you have to train me after the episode. Welcome everybody to Beyond the Box Set, a podcast where we pitch prequels, sequels and spin-offs to films that don't have any. I'm Harry and joining me as always is John. Hello. John, you've organised a guest for this week. So we recently launched on Patreon, as we often mention, um, and one of the perks that we offer to our Patreon supporters is that we invite them to come onto the show and to pick a film for us to cover, and if they want to join us they can. Uh, one of our very kind supporters is uh, Nathan Hunt from Think Outside the Box Set, our near namesakes, <laughs> and so Nathan is joining us today. So ha- thank you, Nathan. Hi. I, uh... I'm a proud supporter of Beyond the Box Set, and uh, I decided I was going to come on here and embarrass both of you by talking about how much I like your show, because, (laughs) yeah, and I mean, there's there's a lot of podcasts out there, and a lot of them I don't really like very much, but I like your show, so there you go. Oh, thank you very much. Is it just because we have a similar name to yours, or? No, it isn't. Uh, That's that's why I checked you out originally. Uh, I've told the story on our podcast, but... We had been debating the two names, Think Outside the Box Set or Beyond the Box Set for our podcast, totally unaware of what you guys had done. And we launched, I think, six to eight months after you two did. And uh, we eventually decided on Think Outside the Box Set. But when we did our first episode, I actually announced our name wrong, and I accidentally said your name. <gasps> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's it's technically our episode now. Oh shoot! I hadn't even <laughs> thought of that. I guess <laughs> mm, I'll, I'll send it over to you. You can reassign, reassign it to your RSS feed, and it can go out on yours. Yeah, I if see you could, it. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> That'll be nice and confusing for our listeners when there's just a random episode about Garth Brooks in the middle of all our films. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So first of all, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what Think Outside the Box set is and what you guys do? Sure. So we came up with this idea of thinking about. There are all these musical artists that lots of people have heard of, but don't really know. And uh, our first example of that was Garth Brooks, because he's the number two selling artist in United States history, but we knew nobody who had listened to an entire Garth Brooks album. And we were... John's giving me a look like, see, like I told you, (laughs) music's important or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so we were like, what, what's up with Garth Brooks? What do people see in him? Why has he sold so many records? And so we decided to turn it into a show, and we've listened to all of Garth Brooks's albums in order, and found out that we appreciate him more than we probably like him or his music. He's more progressive than you'd expect. And then after Garth, we decided we were going to check out Insane Clown Posse. So I don't know. Have you have you two heard of Insane Clown Posse? The name rings a bell. I have. I remember them. Yeah, I say Mm -hmm. remember them. Like yeah, they're kind of a (laughs) metal band yeah heavy metal. would you define them as heavy metal do you reckon or punk or uh they, in between? they definitely have some heavy metal elements um they're more i think coming from the hip-hop tradition but mm. they are from detroit they are i believe what is called horrorcore and it's it's rapping that's all about like um scary movies or blood and violence and sort of like a a horror movie aesthetic approach to hip-hop and they dress up as wicked clowns and they have face paint that they wear and they have this whole like mythology about this dark carnival where these wicked clowns tempt people and judge them after death and all this stuff. And I mean, they must be in like their fifties now, surely, or their late forties at least, because they've been going for a long time. They so. have been, yeah. If you if you see a, a photo of one of the one of the guys from ICP without makeup, he looks like a sad Louis C.K. He's like kind of balding <laughs> and well, sadder Louis C.K. I'd say. I was going to say a Louis C.K. is not too happy at the moment, so yeah. yeah. Sadder. <laughs> Yeah, so they are getting pretty old. So what film have you brought to us today to discuss? Well, I've brought a movie called Amélie, mm. which... Our very first foreign language film. Is it? Really? Yeah, mm. so you oh. brought some culture to this yeah. low-rent podcast. <laughs> that surprises me. Yeah, so it's a, a 2001 
a French romantic comedy by Jean-Pierre Jeunet, which I've seen most of his movies, I think. That is the Frenchest name I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jean-Pierre. Exactly. So why did you choose Amelie? This movie was astonishingly successful. And I think, from what I understand, the critical opinion has sort of seesawed back and forth on this one, where it came out, it was very successful, it was very critically regarded, and I think there was some backlash against it because of the trope of the manic pixie dream girl. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm. we've covered this recently. Yeah. Yeah, there was some backlash, and I think it's undeserved because, from what I can tell, this movie kind of deconstructs the idea of the manic pixie dream girl. I don't know if you two agree. We'll get into it, I'm sure. But I think it's a very interesting movie that, yeah, I think some people don't think of it as, as well of, as they, they could. This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well. This is my second time watching the film. I had actually seen it many years ago before, and I really, really like it. But um, Harry, was this your first time watching it? Mm, yeah, it was. So what would you make of it? It's great fun. I think it is the epitome of quirky. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's one of the quirkiest films I've ever seen, and it's the only word I've really got to describe it uh, or Amelie herself, the character. Mm. I'm interested that you brought up the Manic Pixie Dream Girl idea, because that did cross my mind watching it as well. But at the same time, I agree. I don't think that's a very fair characterization of Amelie, because for me, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a character who is very two-dimensional, whose kind of quirks don't seem very natural and are just purely there to serve the function of the main male character, the male romantic lead, to give him kind of, to teach him a valuable lesson. Whereas Amelie is the hero of this movie. Like, she does have a love interest, but it's not his story. It's 100% her story. You say the character was quirky, but obviously that's a word we threw around for Natalie Portman in Garden State. I mean, quirky, <laughs> insufferably quirky, death by quirk. Do well, you feel I, the same way or? I, I would say that I'd class them both as quirky. Sure. But I understand the concept of Manny P- Manic Pixie Dream Girl and, uh, yeah, Garden State is definitely is that, and this one I would say definitely is not. Mm-hmm. I would say because this one is just so characterised in a way, mm-hmm. you, you see where she's coming from, you see her side of everything, whereas to compare her directly to Natalie Portman's character, you don't at all. True. And I think the, the performance definitely elevates it as well. I think this is Audrey Tattoo's kind of breakout role in terms of, well, not English-speaking, it's a French role, but in, in the English-speaking world, this is when the world first realised how talented she was. And I think in a lesser actress's hands, it could be a really irritating character, but she mm. is heartbreaking and hilarious and just wonderful. I think she really embodies the character really, really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I feel like at least part of the journey of her character is um, letting go of the idea of defining herself by her quirkiness. The whole way that the painter, her neighbour, interacts with her, sort of mm-hmm. urging her to go out and meet people and interact with people to come down to earth a little bit, I think her her journey ends up being about getting in touch with people in a way that feels like sort of the the opposite of the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. It's kind of like she goes on a real character arc, a real journey. Not to subsume her kind of quirkiness, but it's established quite early on in the film that she's very introverted and she's very shy and she can't really deal with people on a one-to-one basis. And the film is about her journey towards actually escaping this fairyland that she lives in and kind of actually taking a chance on love and on life. I would guess that's her broad arc. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, just to very quickly summarize the film, if anyone hasn't seen it, this is a French language film that came out in, was it 2002, I believe? Or somewhere around that time. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge success around the world. It stars Audrey Tattoo as the character of Amelie, who is a girl who was raised by two neurotic parents. Her mother is, well, her mother's very neurotic and her father is very distant. And then her mother dies when she's young. And so she grows up as a very introverted person. She never goes to school. And then it catches up with her as an adult. She works in a cafe. She has a group of kind of quirky characters around her, kind of friends and colleagues, etc. But no one that she's particularly close to. And then she falls in love with a character called Nino, who is a repairman for a photo booth. She never really has a conversation with him, though. She kind of uses a lot of tricks and quirks to kind of win his heart, but while also kind of following this mission to kind of make other people happy. She does a lot of kind of meddling in, other, in the lives of the other characters. Mm-hmm. And then... That the film just kind of follows her in this kind of whimsical journey. It's very whimsical. Mm. This kind of whimsical journey through kind of finding herself and, as I say, finding romance and making people happy. And I guess that's the very broad strokes plus of the film. Mm-hmm. Have you two seen any Wes Anderson films? Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Wes Anderson mm-hmm. films. Yeah. Did this remind you of Wes Anderson at all? It did in some bits. Like how the, the way that some of the characters acted 
felt a little bit Wes Anderson, where everybody's just talking very quickly mm-hmm. and their replies are all very quick as well. That's kind of a Wes Anderson thing. It's very heightened. Everything about the film is very heightened. Like the, the visuals and the characterizations, everything's a little bit hyper real. Mm-hmm. I would say particularly yeah. everything that happens in the first uh, 10, 15 yeah. minutes of her as a child. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's all very heightened. Yeah, I didn't think of Wes Anderson, although now that you mention it, that's a very good comparison. I kind of thought of kind of early Tim Burton in a similar way. Oh, yeah. Kind of st- slightly dark fairy tales which are very very whimsical and also have these edges of darkness and kind of adult themes as well but definitely fall into the category of a fairy tale and look the way they're shot they do look like they're a fairy tale they don't look particularly like the real world something about the way it's shot everything looks very clean everything doesn't really look real world i remember reading some trivia actually that every set that they used they cleaned up so there was no trash there was no dirt everything looked really pristine oh really yeah, to give it this real kind of fairy tale quality, which I think really suits the film because it means you can really buy into it. I mean, without going on too much of a tangent, we've been talking a lot about tone recently because have you seen the, the film Free Billboards yet? One of the big Oscar frontrunners. I haven't. No, I've heard some very mixed things about it. Yeah, we both enjoyed it, but I had some issues with that, whereas the tone was very jarring. It kind of jumped between kind of real grounded stuff and then some very heightened stuff that was played for very broad laughs or for very broad kind of drama. Mm-hmm. Any time a film jumps awkwardly from one tone to another, I kind of struggle with it. Mm-hmm. I can accept any kind of premise as long as the tone is consistent. And the reason this film worked for me particularly was that it was very consistent in its tone. Once you've got a sense for it, you can feel very comfortable in it and you can follow it. And I appreciated that a lot. Mm-hmm. I do remember just so much about this stylized stuff of the direction, especially in the beginning. Is there like some claymation section? Is that claymation? I, I thought it was just... Or is stop it just motion, like, yes. it might be stop motion yeah. stop motion because it, yeah. it, it it still looks like a real person mm-hmm. okay well yeah. there's, I, I seen that we're talking about the pregnant woman getting more and more pregnant yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah and then you see the birth like the literal and that's where it becomes like an adult even though it's a fairy tale and it could in some ways be seen as quite childish you then do see a baby literally crowning through a woman's vagina so it's like, i was <laughs> eating at the time i was <laughs> not made... prepared and i was not happy with that situation yeah. <laughs> that made quite an impression yeah. on me when i was uh i guess 16 17 year old and saw it for the first time <laughs> i mean yeah. it's quick but it's it's there yeah mm-hmm. one thing that struck me watching it back is that the first 10 minutes in particular are super dark mm-hmm. like they get this whole thing about emily's childhood and it, it's leading to the creation of this kind of introverted character who's very sweet and essentially good but i, I was thinking watching what you could that same 10 minutes could easily be used to be the start of a horror movie of this like yeah. sociopath mm-hmm. because Basically, she's deprived of all human contact. She's raised by these incredibly dysfunctional parents. There's almost kind of a Roald Dahl-y style to it as well in the sense I was going to say, oh, that's a great very Roald Dahl at the start. Yeah. And uh, a bit that we talked about in the middle as well, where she starts tormenting the, uh, the, the greengrocer. Green and that, mm-hmm. that particularly felt very twits. of Just like getting a pair of slippers that are slightly too small and just changing everything just slightly. And so he doesn't really notice. But it mm-hmm. does a lot of long-term damage. And that felt massively Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of feels like a Roald Dahl written Wes Anderson directed film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really could actually. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, have you have you seen uh, any of Jean Pierre Jeunet, the most French name in the world? <laughs> have you seen any of his other films? Not that I'm aware of. No, what else has he done that's noticeable? He's he, he did uh, Delicatessen, which is about some cannibals, oh. The City of yeah. Lost Children, and uh, improbably Alien Resurrection which is uh, a very strange really? movie. But definitely something <laughs> like City of Lost Children has a, has a similar... Well, it's much more dark, much more fairy tale. I think this is his lightest film by far. That's interesting because I hadn't looked into that, but you could change the tone by like a 45 degree angle and it would you could make the film a lot darker because mm-hmm. if you look at some of the things Emily does, obviously the first 10 minutes paints a quite bleak picture of her childhood but then even as an adult as harry kind of mentioned she's breaking into people's houses she's borderline stalking a guy who she never actually has a conversation with until the end the same actions could tell a very different story if it was presented just ever so slightly differently i think absolutely i mean there's a really colorful cast in this film there's a lot of really interesting supporting characters which i really like did you have any particular favorites in terms of the characters other than amelie herself because there's so many different plot lines going on for me it was pretty much everybody in in the cafe okay yeah is it a cafe is it it's a cafe yeah i mean i'd call mm-hmm. it a pub because it's serving alcohol but mm. uh, it's, mm. didn't really it's look not like a british pub though, no not at all <laughs> that's what a french pub looks like probably just wine um, and romance and but yeah like the whole situation there like i'd quite happily watch just a sitcom set in there like cheers but a french parisian version yeah yeah that'd, that'd be that'd be great fun <laughs> there was a nice colorful cast of characters there and uh yeah, well they weren't all having a good time but they were all fun had good interactions <laughs> was there anyone in particular though that stood out to you um i think it was the woman selling the tobacco oh the hypochondriac mm. she was good oh she's great i really liked lucien 
the poor uh, grocer's assistant that gets picked on by the grocer. Oh, he's, yeah. He's so sweet. I, he is, isn't he? Yeah. He's such a nice guy. Also, uh, Dominique Pinon, the, the actor, as Joseph, who is the, who's the one in the cafe who gets tricked into falling in love with the hypochondriac. He plays it well, but like, he's not likable. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> he's creepy as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> Why is he known for other things, or have you just memorized everyone's names? Well, um, I have Wikipedia open right now, so I have the, like oh, the right, cast list. <laughs> I'm cheating a little bit here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't remember the all these people's names. No, he's he's a pretty accomplished actor. He he actually shows up in a lot of uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet's films. <laughs> I liked everyone in this film, really. Yeah, like it, everybody's fun. All got, all got interesting stories, good interactions. Mm-hmm. Overall, it's a really, really well-written film. It is. I really liked the way it looked as well. Everyone had such interesting hair. <laughs> Alright, here we go. Oh wait, are yeah, we going to do a wig watch? We might be getting onto wig watch now, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's definitely Audrey Tattoo is definitely wearing some kind of wig there to give her hair that kind of, that flick. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the hypochondriac lady as well, I don't have the names in front of me, but the hypochondriac definitely had a quite interesting do for the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone just everyone was just a little bit larger than life, which is a really fit the tone of the movie, which I really appreciated. The greengrocer's assistant was a kind of a tragic character in many ways. He was very sweet. and But then there's a scene where the Peter's teaching him about pronunciation, correct pronunciation, mm-hmm. and he does that through the medium of basically making death threats against his boss, which again, oh, yeah. was a oh, moment yeah. where he's like... <laughs> What about that? Uh, it was a moment when I was thought this film could take a dark turn. Is, yeah. Is he going to get his revenge at some point? Or? <laughs> yeah, that was quite weird, actually. Yeah. Did either of you think that it was a bit of a letdown that the bald man in all the photos was just a guy repairing the booths? <laughs> like, it, it felt mm. like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, as opposed to it being some sort of weird fairy tale type character. He's. Well, Nino seems so happy as well when he figured it out. And I was like... I know, I'd be so unhappy when I, yeah, if, like, if, I, if I figured that. Word, just like, oh, <laughs> sorry, you're just a repairman. Oh, like, it, it just ruins the mystery. It would have yeah. been... That's, that's, my, no, that's the one thing I've got against this film. They should have just left that open. Mm-hmm. Just mm. leave it open to interpretation. They never find the man. Like, you see him once or twice, but you never actually find out who he is, what it is that he's doing. Mm. And then just leave it to interpretation. Mm, that's an interesting decide. point. Yeah, because I feel like the, a lot of this movie is sort of the balancing act between realism and fairy tale, and it sounds like you wanted it to be tilted just a little bit more towards fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, that felt like a strangely grounded kind of um, yeah, you know, a very mundane answer to kind of a a mystery that kind of runs through the film. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially how it's shot because it's so dramatic with like the flashes of the bulbs when he's taking the photos. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. very dramatized. Yeah, it's a good mm-hmm. point. There's some really nice visual effects in this film. I really like the... Again, it goes into this kind of cartoonish kind of quality sometimes. For example, there's a scene where she meets Nino in the cafe, but she's too shy to talk to him, and she literally turns into a puddle of water. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or there's a lot of scenes where you can see her heart beating inside her chest. Again, Mm -hmm. it's it's nice. And lots of breaking of the fourth wall. Lots of moments of Amelie looking directly through the camera. Which I like. I love films that do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't want more films to do it than currently do, yeah. because then it would just become too much or too common or something. But I, I just, I really like it. I find it a good way to tell stories. I liked it in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this did it well. But I could, it's the kind of thing that can annoy me sometimes when it's overused. But oh, like House of Cards just, or something. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it gets a little <laughs> bit much. But so. yeah, I, know, I like it in House of Cards because <laughs> for that one, it, it it's a good contrast because that that series is just so serious all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, and then they just do something which is just completely mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, I like it. I want to see it in Star Wars. Now we're talking. <laughs> I want, I want, who, who do you want? I want Poe Dameron to talk to me. No, I want it to be 3PO. 3PO. Oh. <laughs> He's our audience substitute, yeah. <laughs> Maybe R2-D2 has been talking to you this whole time and you just never knew it. Ah, uh, yeah, Quite nice, possibly, nice. Uh, or Chewbacca. Or I mean, you never know. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, Chewbacca definitely should be the one to break the fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out he can speak English ver- this whole time. Or, or they could release versions of all the previous Star Wars films with subtitles of all the people who are not speaking English. Oh, there and they you are go. Talking directly to us. They could call it special edition or uh, remastered yes. or something. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. If George Lucas gets wind of this. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Faithful listener, George Lucas. Um, okay, should we get onto some drinking games? Maybe. Yeah. Sounds good to yeah. me. Did you have any prepared names? Or? I I actually don't. I apologize. <gasps> Well, how dare you? Mm. I'm the worst. Well, we'll start then, if any come to you. Um, So what the first one I had was drink every time someone offers Amelie a drink. Oh. Ah. There you go. It happens a lot. When she's going around all the different characters, every time she meets a new character, they say, have some port, have some whiskey, have some wine, Mm. have some coffee. 
she's constantly being offered drinks. So mm. this might actually be the telling the story of Amelie's slow decline into alcoholism. <laughs> it might actually be the, the real story going on here. <laughs> nice, mm. nice. Drink whenever someone spies on somebody else. Oh, okay. There's a lot of spying in there this There is. So she spies on the painter yeah. who spies on the clock. Mm-hmm. I guess there's the guy in the in the cafe or whatever who's spying on not really spying but at least but he's well, always, stalking really yeah, just stalking everyone who moves yeah yeah I thought there's a few people there it's worth noting the, the greengrocer's assistant too is at one point filming through the window isn't he oh yeah true yeah, mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. yeah the, again lots of issues of consent and you know creepy, <laughs> yeah. 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 some creepy undertones at, at times mm. yeah. uh, I also had drink for references to Princess Diana and her death oh uh, yeah, yeah. that was of. an interesting runner mm. I kind of liked the little misdirect they did at the start when it said this is the moment that changed Amelie's life forever mm-hmm. and then the news piece shoots up that Princess Diana's just died and you think oh is this going to be the thing mm. and then it's like she, she actually couldn't care less it's just that the moment surprises her enough that she drops the glass bottle yeah mm-hmm. and that leads to her finding the thing and she actually, then she just clicks off the news and she's not interested in the slightest in Princess Diana <laughs> and there's kind of a little low-key running joke which is actually not that impressed with the whole mass mourning that went on at the time because there's a thing where somebody else says oh it's so tragic at last there was a beautiful princess and she kind of rolls her eyes and says, well, would it be less tragic if she was old and ugly? And the other woman says, of course, look, Mother Teresa just died as well and nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly what it was. I remember when Princess Diana died, that's exactly what it was. Like, poor Mother Teresa died, like, a week later and comparatively such a muted reaction. Like, it was... mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it, and then, obviously, there's also the Green Grocer's assistant again. We learn has a fetish for Princess Diana. Well, he's posted Princess Diana's head on a bunch of Playboy models or something. There's a reference yeah, to that. So. that was creepy. Like, just, this film has definitely got a slightly dark sense of humor, which I always appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have one, actually. How about drink every time Amelie tricks somebody or gaslights somebody? Because she does do a lot of that. She yeah. does. She does. She, again, this is why the film's a bit dark. It is like she's like a puppet master pulling the strings and everyone around her. There's definitely a version of this film where she's a sociopath. Oh, she's definitely. Machiavellian, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Princess by Niccolo Machiavelli. Mm. Yeah. So that's uh, three sequels we've come up with so far. Amelie is a sociopath, Amelie is an alcoholic, yeah. and a sitcom set in the, in the cafe. Yeah. Ooh. Let's just combine them all. We're doing well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, my next one is drink for every photo booth you see. Oh, okay. Oh, you get pretty drunk. There's not much to talk about <laughs> on that point, but uh, yeah. Or maybe yeah. every photo, not just photo booths, because there's actually oh, loads. Oh, God, of, I mean, that, no. you would go blind. But, uh. <laughs> You'd be struggling on that. That'd be worse than the room. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this one's just coming to me. How about drink every time they make this specific neighborhood of Paris look really nice when it's... You're really not quite that nice in real life, or it's very touristy. You know what? I agree. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I've been to Paris uh, last October and the October before it, and I had a bad time both times because there are just way too many tourists there. So and many. I feel like Paris has lost all the charm that it's it's got the reputation for. Mm-hmm. This film made it look so nice and made me want to go back to Paris, mm-hmm. but same time kind of don't yeah maybe this film is the reason maybe this because this was a very successful film maybe this film made that part of paris look so nice that everybody goes there and it's now become this hideous tourist trap so yeah it's, very possible. it's ruined paris yeah they have that climactic scene at the uh sacre coeur basilica way up on the top mm-hmm. of montmartre that's where she um she has nino answering the phone calls as he's like going up the hill to that, yeah, yeah. that church so there's that climactic scene and if you go there now it's just completely packed with tourists like there's not an inch yeah, of standing room and there's people selling trinkets and little brass eiffel towers and whatnot oh god yeah <laughs> it's a shame so much junk in the world <laughs> <laughs> well i've got one last one uh, which is drink for every stone skimmed oh when she st- skims multiple stone. skims count as multiple drinks yeah. do you know they had to cgi the stone skimming Did because uh, audrey's the two couldn't do it mm. what so she probably rammed up the budget by someone for about a good few thousand dollars. Just I mean, by the fact just that she pay somebody to give her a lesson. It doesn't. Yeah. It's not hard. Apparently, she just could not master it for the life of her. Wow. Yeah. Also, she wasn't wasn't the first choice for this film, which I find interesting because it, it feels like the perfect role for the perfect actress. But mm-hmm. um, it was actually originally offered to Emily Watson. Oh wow. Not Hermione Granger, the yeah, Emily yeah. Watson of Breaking the Waves. And, oh okay. Um, yeah, I forget what else she's been in. But she's a very, a very good British actress, but I believe she didn't speak French and. So couldn't learn the French in time, so they had to hire a French actress, which oh ended up working out very well. Yeah. But I can see why. That she looks kind of similar to Audrey Tattoo. I can see this. She has a similar kind of elfing quality to her. And she does often play these kind of whimsical characters. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. just a bit, a little casting tip there. Could have been a slightly different film. Yeah, sure, sure. Shall we move on to some sequels there? But sure, let's do it. Cool. Nate, would you like to go first or do you want us to go first? It's, uh, uh, you, you, guys, you guys should go first. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to hear them. Well, no one ever said that. So the idea we came up with was because this film has a 
you know, as you mentioned, kind of this whimsical quality and this kind of, there's a lot of stuff about kind of happenstance and circumstance. I mean, the film opens with this kind of voiceover about at a certain time of a certain day, a butterfly flapped its, or a fly flapped its wings on the, on my march or something. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, there's a lot of kind of stuff about missed connections. And so that kind of reminded us of another well-known world cinema film of roughly the same era, which is uh, the German film um, Run, Lola, Run. Mm. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't. I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Ooh, you should. It's a very mm. good film. Highly recommended. Mm. So do you want to describe a bit of Run, Lola, Run for some context? Or? Yeah. So, well, the plot of that is uh, her boyfriend has got in like a bad drug deal or something. Yeah. This is Famke Janssen, I think, a German actress. Mm-hmm. Is it sure. Famke Janssen? Yeah. Uh, the, the woman from Fifth Element. Yeah. Mm. No, it's not. Is it her? Yeah. Okay. Mila Hovovich? Um, yeah. No, it's, it's not. Is it Mila Hovovich? I'm pretty sure. I thought it was sure. Anyway. Mm. One of those, anyway. Mm-hmm. Other people can Google this for us. So somebody has a boyfriend who <laughs> owes a drug dealer a lot of money, which uh, that drug dealer needs by, like, midday or something. I don't know. And so he asked her to get the money for him because she probably has a way. I guess she's just known for being resourceful or something. We well, don't I guess it's his know. last... Ch- he has no op- other op- options. It's like, by means fair or foul, yeah. I need five grand by the end of the day or I'm going to be killed. That's basically the, the stakes. Pretty much, mm-hmm. yeah. And so she goes off trying to get the money. And at one point... Just as she's like leaving her apartment, running down the stairs, the uh, the whole film turns into a cartoon. It's a bit weird. And uh, in that, there's a little interaction that she has with a dog, which sets off three separate timelines. So in one of them, like she runs straight past the dog. In one of them, the dog bites her. In the other one, like she jumps over the dog completely, meaning that she like runs at a different speed or something, and different events happen. Mm-hmm. And so the film is split into three where you have with one story and then you have another story which is slightly different everything's slightly different and a completely different outcome at the end kind of like sliding doors yeah exactly yeah and then a third story where again everything's slightly different but the the end is is ultimately quite different yeah mm-hmm. and so we thought we'd take inspiration from that because uh well like you say these films have got some similarities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially to us, they're both foreign films. Yes, they're <laughs> foreign language films, so we're going to lump them all together. Yeah, yeah. Run the Lewin's actually a German film, not French, but you know, close enough, you know. You say to me, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They've got a border, those. Yeah, well, they do, exactly. Uh, so our sequel is called uh, Run, Amelie, Run. Mm. And I guess the idea is that the film, the actual film that exists, the real Amelie, is one of three potential outcomes. Oh, I like based this. On a, based on a certain event that happens in the film. Mm-hmm. So, and we're saying because the film has a happy ending, because in Run, Lola, Run, there are two endings in which it doesn't work out for her, and the third ending, it all ends happily. So we're going to say that the actual film, Amelie, is the, the happy ending, and these two might be preceded. These are kind of the what might have been if this one situation had not happened. And... Just a little warning for you. They're not necessarily that happy. No. Mm. Oh, really? D- did John come <laughs> up with an idea done. that's not happy? What a oh. shock. <laughs> we brainstormed together. We brainstormed. It's from the joint effort. Actually, I will say this. We were brainstorming this, this this afternoon and we were coming up with ideas. And there were a lot of times when Harry would pitch something really super dark and I had to pull him back and say, it has to be dark, but also humorous. It can't just be horrible. It can't just be a terrible, terrible thing. Like, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised. Like, mm. I may seem like the dark soul of the two of us, mm-hmm. but I... Actually, you know, he's got some darkness in him. Yeah, too. well, mm. has Harry mi- ever microwaved a cat yet? Well, no. But... <laughs> Don't I get mean, me I, started. Once again, that I didn't actually microwave a cat. I just it was it made narrative sense. <laughs> Don't believe that. Let's not go over this again. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> it's a lot of therapy. <sighs> so yeah, so the event that we've chosen that is the consistent thread through the three stories is the scene in which Nino is. Amelie's love interest Nino is chasing the bald man in the van and mm-hmm. there's a scene where he's, he jumps on his bicycle to kind of give chase to kind of give the guy's bag back is it? Mm-hmm. The guy's mm-hmm. dropped his bag No 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 it's to just catch him and just say like who are you? Oh okay I and thought then, he left a bag okay and so then a car comes and in natural Amelie it uh, just clips his bag and his bag falls off and then the rest of the plot happens yes mm-hmm. so we picked that as our thing that's going to be different in all three films so in all three storylines so in the first storyline, um, the car misses him completely and he carries on on his journey. Amelie does not pick up his bag because he's still got his bag. He doesn't drop the bag, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Consequently, they never meet. So. so yeah, Amelie and Nino never meet. And so we kind of thought, what is that going to impact on the other characters? Because it's going to change Amelie's mm-hmm. whole storyline because now she's not got a love interest. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, we kind of went through all of the supporting characters and kind of thought about how that might affect her interactions with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Well, I've got the first storyline, and then you take the second one. Okay, sure. So, the greengrocer, 
for that one, Amelie really ramps up what she's doing in his house because she's now not got the distraction of, of Nino. She's not, you know, sort of looking through this book of photos or whatever. So she takes it quite seriously. She's constantly going in his house and changing everything. Mm-hmm. And eventually she takes it too far. And after switching his medicine round, he ends up poisoning himself and dying. Oh, God. <laughs> See what I mean about getting dark? Yeah, it is getting dark. Mm. Yeah, we're just getting started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, obviously, because that's the greengrocer who's mean to his assistant, and she, as revenge, is going into his house and switching things around to kind of mess with his head. Consequently, the greengrocer's assistant, Lucian, because he's the only person who has access to the keys to the it's where everyone's apartments, because he does all the deliveries, um, he gets blamed for the death of the greengrocer, and he ends up being sent to jail where he obviously is bullied and abused by all of the other prisoners for a long time. But through that, mm-hmm. eventually he, he snaps and he develops some self-confidence and ultimately becomes a violent um, prison kingpin figure, uh, oh earning the respect of the other inmates through violence and intimidation. So he's basically the Parisian version of... Is it kingpin from... Who's it in, who's it in Daredevil? Who? Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, what Kingpin. Is this kind of called? Kingpin, kingpin, kingpin is yeah, the character. Yeah, so yeah. he becomes basically yeah. a Parisian version of kingpin. So imagine that, him in maybe gains a lot of weight and is just wearing like a big baby grow and just battering people all the time. So that's what happens to Paul Lucien. Oh my God. Uh, okay, so now the painter, her neighbour, um, with uh, the greengrocer's assistant gone completely um, and Amelie also not inspiring him to paint because she's not sort of taken with this, uh, this, this Nino guy. He loses mm-hmm. all inspiration and continues to paint the same painting every year, still failing to capture the spirit of the characters on the canvas. His frustration from not being able to capture anybody eventually leads him to paint darker and darker paintings, leading to his eventual death when he burns down his apartment along with all his art, making him a lost artist who does not get discovered after death. Wow. This is a bleak one, isn't it? It is. Yeah, this bleak is bleak when you say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, it's a uh, wonderful life, but for Amelie. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So then we get to the cafe characters. So obviously the, the stalker guy who is in love with his ex, who's constantly following his ex-girlfriend around and monitoring her every move, uh, who ultimately falls in love with the hypochondriac in the original film. But then the cycle repeats. I don't think he ever gets much of a redemption. So in this version, he never does actually fall in love with the hypochondriac because Amelie never is inspired by love to meddle in his life. So his obsession with the original waitress escalates to the point where he gets a restraining order against him. And eventually he is arrested and sent to jail for a short spell for stalking. Mm-hmm. And while he's in jail, he falls in with, with a gang led by the greengrocer's assistant, who has become, as we mentioned, this kingpin now. <laughs> and when he gets out, he becomes a drug mule. So he's actually smuggling drugs between the prison and he's using the cafe as kind of a base of operations on the outside world. So now we get on to the hypochondriac. So she stays working at the shop, claiming to have uh, more and more diseases, which <laughs> well, it's a weird thing in the film that. Well, she's a hypochondriac. She thinks she's got sciatica. She thinks she's got all kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. And so eventually she starts buying weed off the pervy man who's out of jail now mm-hmm. um, obviously once he's become a drug dealer she becomes a drug addict living on the streets um, eventually I guess she loses her job and her house and everything that's mm-hmm. one night she's sleeping in an alleyway and is woken by a burning portrait falling on her um, she wakes looks up just in time to see a burning apartment block falling down mm-hmm. she, she, she dies so that's the painter obviously <laughs> is burning his apartment down it's, it's mm-hmm. all tied together wow so. the, the way that we're reading this John it seems like I'm getting all the ones where people die at the end <laughs> It's just, that's, just the way the, that's just the way the cards have, cards have fallen, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now we get on to the widow, the character of the, the woman whose husband left her many years before and who is obviously living a very lonely life. Uh, the concierge of the apartments, I believe she is. The one who has taxidermied her dog. So that character. Mm-hmm. So in the original film, Amelie forges a letter from her dead husband to kind of claiming that he always loved her and kind of that gives her a, a sense of closure on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. In this version, because Amelie doesn't have a boyfriend to focus on, that escalates a little bit. To the point mm-hmm. where, she, rather than just write the one letter, she ends up writing a bunch of letters posing as the husband to this poor woman, claiming that he's in fact survived the plane crash and is still alive to this day. She ends up digging a deeper and deeper hole for herself by this web of lies that she ends up communicating with this woman. And at some point, obviously, the woman asks the man, if you're still alive, when are you going to come home? Which Emily can't do because the man is in fact dead. So as a result, the woman becomes quite bitter and the reconciliation curdles a little bit and they're writing these letters that begin as love letters but then actually become argumentative and so ultimately the woman decides to dump her husband still by letter she still hasn't seen him mm-hmm. uh, so she dumps him and decides to go on to sell up she leaves the apartment building behind she sells the building to some local developers and she goes off on around the world cruise meaning everyone who lives in the apartment block including Amelie is left homeless oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so then we move on to uh, the last secondary character which is Amelie's dad 
So mm-hmm. Amelie now being homeless is forced to move back in with her dad. She still does the gnome thing where she gives that to the travel agent or whatever she was. Sends the gnome around the world. Um, cruise, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but all the misfortune that she has caused to everyone has made her quite bitter as well. And as the gnome thing hasn't inspired her dad to travel, she repurposes the whole thing. She gets the gnome back and breaks it apart. She anonymously sends it back to her dad piece by piece, like oh. an ear first, for example, oh my in exchange God. for money. This is like a hostage, Eventually, like a ransom thing. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, her dad recognizes her handwriting and convinces her to confess. He forces her to write apology letters to everyone she has meddled with. Mm-hmm. Which means that the, the greengrocer's assistant, who is now, now, a kingpin. Who is now the kingpin in jail, realizes, oh, this is the person who got me put in prison. So he's not very pleased with this, and he coordinates with uh, the perfect guy on the outside to have Amelie killed. Oh my god. She has her brakes cut, and while her and her dad are driving around Paris, they uh, are involved in a car crash where they are both killed. The car crash takes place in the same place uh, where Lady Diana died. Oh, wow. That's neat. <laughs> that's, tied uh, together. that's the end of storyline one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's even, I think it's, it seemed a lot bleaker reading it out loud than it did, did when we were brainstorming. Didn't it, just? <laughs> that's, that's what it's, the next one's not quite as bleak, so that's one of two, thankfully. Wow. It's going to be a real, da- real downsy episode, if that was all it was. Mm-hmm. So that's the first um, set of circumstances. In the second one, in this one, rather than uh, the car avoiding him completely, this time when Nino is riding his bicycle, the car actually hits him dead on, and he, he falls off his bike, hits his head, and suffers amnesia, mm. loses his memory. Mm-hmm. And Amelie, because she's been chasing him and because she's kind of a fan of harebrained schemes, she races to his side. And when he comes up to in the hospital, she tells him that she's actually his girlfriend and kind of spins this web of lies that uh, they've been together for three years, etc. So she basically brings him back to her apartment and tells all the other characters who are her friends and colleagues that they need to go along with it to you know feed into the deception. Mm-hmm. So, again, we're going to go through all the characters and how this affects them. So, wow. Harry? You're really leaning into the gaslighting on this one. <laughs> As I say, this film doesn't take much to make this film a really dark film. We've yeah. decided to follow that to its natural conclusion. Mm-hmm. Me and John just jumped on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, start off again with the greengrocer, who blackmails Amelie, saying that he won't give the game away if uh, Nino will come and work for him for free. Mm-hmm. So, he says to Nino that, well, you've been working for me for three years, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're very happy together. So Amelie has to go along with it and reluctantly agrees. The greengrocer fires the old assistant and uh, as a result then makes record sales because it turns out Nino is actually very good at dealing with vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> he then opens a chain of underpaid greengrocers exploiting people with mental health problems, mm-hmm. um, which makes him a millionaire. And Amelie feels terrible about it. <laughs> uh, so the greengrocer's assistant, now unemployed thanks to being fired and replaced by Nino, is able to spend more time with the old painter. Uh, who mm-hmm. teaches him how to improve his technique. So he channels his obvious obsession with Princess Diana into a field of painting erotic caricatures of dead celebrities. <laughs> oh, no. And these are completely tasteless, <laughs> but they also sell like hotcakes, mm-hmm. meaning he also becomes super wealthy. Amelie does not approve of this, obviously, but has no power to stop it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on to the next one, the painter, who cannot deal with the deception brought by Amelie, and as a result cannot capture anybody in his paintings anymore, leading him to paint a series of dark, surrealist paintings of people with no faces. These also become very popular, and he becomes very wealthy, mm-hmm. but extremely, extremely depressed. He never does capture the girl with the glass, leaving Amelie feeling sad and empty. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're breaking this film for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We've taken one of the happiest films ever made and made it a complete. Like, yeah. I made mean, it like a La- like a Lars von Trier movie. Or I feel something. like it left yeah. itself open to that. <laughs> it <did>. so. <laughs> so then we get to the stalker and the hypochondriac. So now that Amelie is in this relationship with Nino and bringing him to the cafe, the stalker guy becomes inspired by their seemingly happy relationship and realizes that he's not going to get anywhere by being so possessive and creepy with the women in his life. So he decides to better himself and look for someone else instead, rather than focusing on this one failed relationship. And so much like in the original film, he actually does develop a bond with the hypochondriac, and they start a relationship based on their shared love of scratch cards, which is a runner in this film. So he doesn't fall into his pattern of kind of smothering her, and they just keep meeting up for dates where they just scratch scratch cards together. And eventually they end up getting a winner, and they become millionaires. They become scratch card millionaires. Split the winnings 50-50 and live happily ever after, basically, by a massive mansion in the south of France. And Amelie is very bitter about this because she sees that their relationship is totally genuine, whereas hers is, of course, built on lies. So 
again, it all reflects very poorly on Amelie. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one, the widow, who never receives the fake letter from her dead husband. Because Amelie's too busy dating now. She doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. So. She gets bored of her life. She doesn't commit suicide. <laughs> uh, I mean, we would go there. Uh, mm-hmm. She gets bored of her life and decides to sell up, making Amelie homeless, similar to the first story. Mm-hmm. And she opens a taxidermy business. Oh. And it turns out that Paris is full of lonely widows who were just a bit too attached to their dead pets. <laughs> so the business is a massive success, mm-hmm. allowing her to go on a round-the-world cruise, which leads on to the dad. So now that Amelie's um, landlady has sold up and left her homeless again, she's quite depressed and bitter about the fact that everyone else is in a better relationship than her. And actually her relationship with Nino ultimately fails. Maybe gets his memory back, or maybe the fact that the whole thing is built on lies just becomes too much for her to handle, and ultimately they break up. Mm-hmm. So now she's homeless, she's bitter, she's depressed, she's single. She moves back in with her dad. That's her only recourse. But because she's seen all everyone else around her living a much happier life than she has without her help, she's a very changed character. She's very embittered and she's now basically a goth. So she's dyed her hair jet black and she's, you know, she's moping around the house. And her dad actually can't stand the constant negativity. So he ends up going on a round-the-world cruise just to get away from her for a while, to get away from her smothering depression. Uh, while on that cruise, he runs into the taxidermy widow, who's also on the same cruise. And they fall in love and get married. And ultimately, in this version, everybody lives happily ever after, and Amelie becomes a crazy cat lady. Oh. <laughs> Man, you're really making me rethink this movie as, as like a very <laughs> fragile construction, like a, a Rube Goldberg machine where the slightest gust of wind can make everything fall apart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I feel like that's true to the original movie, but and then I also feel like this is very similar to our Love Actually episode when I took one of Harry's favorite movies and just shat all over it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so apologies. Uh, <laughs> The light at the end of the tunnel is that these two are very much the first. In, in Run, Lola, Run, the happy ending is the third one. The, the first two are quite bleak, and mm-hmm. the third story is the one that ends happily ever after. Mm-hmm. So I think this is similar. So we have these two versions of events where Amelie's life ends poorly, and then the third one is when everything goes right, and it, it's the, fil- the actual film exists, and it ends in, in light and happiness and, you know, a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So obviously we're not going to retell the whole plot of Amelie, but suffice to say the third one is just the film. Mm-hmm. And so it does, it does, despite all our misery, it does actually have a happy ending in the end, but it just takes, takes a little while to get there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, so yeah, so that is Amelie 2. Well, not Amelie 2. It's, it's Amelie Run, Amelie Run. So it's kind of a, an, an alternate version. It's neither a prequel, a sequel, or a midquel. It's just kind of a, an alternate telling of the story. Mm-hmm. So, would, you, and, yeah, would, that's would you do any recasting of this? Or would you just use 2018 versions of all the actors? It's a good question. We didn't consider that. I guess we'd have to use two. I guess some of them might be dead, like some of the older ones, like the paints. I don't think the actor's still alive. So there might be some recasting required. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just a full remake. Maybe we just do current. I mean, do we keep it in French? Do we make it English? What do you think? I guess it has to be. We're not actually doing it, but uh, (laughs) yeah, just shove it in French. Work for Run de la Run, didn't it? To be in German. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, maybe we can draft in some current French stars, like uh, maybe Marion Cotillard could play a role or something, or Mm. Gerard Depardieu. Mm -hmm. Would you still use Audrey Tattoo? Oh, I think she should still be Amelie, definitely. Okay. I think she, she is the definition of Amelie. Can I pitch a side character that can get shoehorned in? Sure. I, I, want, I want one of these people, either a new character or one of the existing characters, to be played by Ron Perlman. Oh, interesting. Because that? Ron Perlman was in Jean-Pierre Genet's earlier film, The City of Lost Children, where he was a brightly red-haired guy, almost like, like Archie from the comics almost wandering around this post-apocalyptic version of paris i guess and speaking very wooden badly accented french so really? i would love if we could shoehorn him into this this sequel who would you cast him as as, as one of the existing characters mm, i wonder the guy at the cafe with the, the scratch yeah. cards maybe or yeah mm-hmm. i think that's the best casting yeah. for him or maybe just go full-on bonkers and make make him amelie's dad Ooh, okay. Interesting. I like the idea of Ron Perlman as Amelie's dad yeah. in full kind of Hellboy mode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just inexplicably, there's this American guy who speaks mm. bad French. I've not seen City of Lost Children. Was his character someone who was bad at French or was it just that they inexplicably cast Ron Perlman and he couldn't speak French? Um, I think, if I remember right, it's a little unclear because it's, it takes place <laughs> in such a fanciful uh, version of humanity and it's really not tied to necessarily a particular location. That it could just be like okay. this random guy who speaks bad French, or it could be an American guy who has been living in France. It's very unclear. Yeah, it's much more fairy tale even than this movie is. The anomaly is. Okay, I have to check that one out. I think this film definitely made me want to watch more of Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Did you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, it made me want to watch more of his work. Yeah, just it, just know that you can skip uh, Alien Resurrection. <laughs> sure, that's the one with Winona Ryder, right? Yeah, yeah, it robots. is, isn't it? I mean, I, I'll watch Winona Ryder as in anything. So. 
I may actually watch that too. Yeah. yeah. She's not particularly stand out in that. No, okay. But I'll, I'll definitely prioritize City of Lost Children and um, what was the other one that you recommended? Delicatessen. Delicatessen, which I have been meaning to watch for a while actually because mm-hmm. I do know that one. That's the one with the cover is like a pig, isn't it? Yes. It's a picture of a pig. Yes, uh, yes, it yes. Is. I, remember, I used to work in a DVD store and I do remember that being like one of the most popular kind of world cinema titles that we used to sell. Yeah, so. that was all over yeah. DVD stores, wasn't it? I remember that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. So do you want to pitch us your idea? Absolutely. So I just have a one liner to begin with, but then I have a, a longer one. First cool. title card Glamily, make it a musical. <laughs> oh, you've been listening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I don't know what would go on with that or what that would mean, but I think it this this movie does seem like it would lend itself to being a musical. Okay, now where would you put the songs in this film? Um, you know, like uh, like the sultry seduction song between the the two in the cafe on completely mm-hmm. uh, invented circumstances by Amelie. You could have a, a fourth wall breaking song where Amelie just like sings to the the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you could have like accordion ballads. Ooh. The entire opening, like, 15 minutes of the film could be told through song. Oh, I love that. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot we can do yeah. here. I think I like that, yeah. Good show. Yeah. I'm a fan. I'm on board. Yeah. So, Glamily. But the, uh, the longer, more fleshed out one I have is called Where in the World is Amélie Poulain? That's, that's her last name, <laughs> Poulain. So, it's 15, 16, 17 years later. It's a direct sequel to the original movie. Mm-hmm. And she isn't still in the, in the relationship with Nino, but things are getting a little stale because she had sort of this invented identity and in a way, not, well, I wouldn't say she tricked him into falling in love with him, but she didn't really know her very well. So it's been, you know, 16 years now and things are getting stale. They need some spark in their lives and their relationship. And so mm-hmm. Amelie decides that without telling Nino, she's going to go on a world tour. So she, she buys a life-size gnome costume, including the hat and a wig and uh, whatever weird clothes that gnome, gnomes wear, the boots. And she goes around the world and she takes photos of herself in front of monuments and places of uh, interest. And as she's doing that, she realizes, oh, I can combine some of the things I'm doing and make this a quest around the world to run my fingers through sacks of grain all over the world. <laughs> and to to eat eat creme brulee or whatever the local analog to creme brulee is and so she she ends up going she is running her fingers through sacks of quinoa in bolivia uh running her fingers through sacks of rice in japan wheat in the american midwest or corn i guess uh, couscous in morocco just all over the world she's running her fingers through these sacks of grain and she's taking photos of her in her gnome costume and she's sending them back to nino who has received them and is 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 delighted. I mean, he he knows he knows what's going on. He recognizes her in the gnome costume, despite the costume. But she finds out that she likes traveling the world, and she doesn't want to go back. Oh no! But she's running out of money. How is she going to support herself? So she ends up slipping into a little bit of petty theft. She applies her gaslighting and deceptive skills to steal diamond bracelets from rich vacationers or the life savings of retirees who are traveling abroad. And mm-hmm. the more she gets into it, the more she realizes that she was born to do this. This is what she was made for. All her skills are coming into play. But, but like a drug addict, she needs a bigger and bigger high as she does it more and more. So she keeps escalating, and she's stealing more brazenly, and she's stealing bigger things. She steals a car. She steals a speedboat. She steals a cabin at one point. She even starts stealing famous works of art. So I think maybe she steals the Mona Lisa at some point. She... Ooh, am I sensing some kind of crossover here mm. with another famous or two Tasso film? Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know, actually. I hadn't thought. I was thinking of a crossover, but now with uh, Audrey Tasso. What? She, is um, she not in the, the, um, the Da Vinci Code? Oh, is she? She is. I'm, she's, the, she's the female lead in the Da Vinci Code. Oh. Um, well, in that case, I'm, I'm going to guess, are you doing National Treasure? No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> I think it's a little bit more of an obscure poll than that. Oh, yeah. we'll carry on. Yeah. Let's see if we we'll see if you can guess it. I, I don't actually even know if it was uh, very popular over in the UK. So, so this all could be ramping up to a disappointing anticlimax where you're like, oh, we don't know what that is. Anyway, <laughs> she starts stealing famous works of art. Uh, let's say she steals the Da Vinci Code. She steals the Mona Lisa. And she starts building a criminal empire. So she gets more resources. She has people helping her and she starts getting things like helicopters and 
boring machines that allow her to steal bigger and bigger things. And so she graduates to stealing monuments. Yeah. Is this Monuments Men? No. 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 You've misunderstood what that film is, John. These are good guesses. No. Um, so she steals the Leaning Tower. It feels like a Futurama episode. It does. Yeah, there is that one where um, the president has, back in the past, had stolen all those monuments. Yeah. Uh, so she steals the Leaning Tower of Pisa. She steals the Taj Mahal. She even steals the Eiffel Tower. Mm. Yeah. And so, as the movie is ending, this prompts Interpol to create an elite team of gumshoes to track her down. And it ends on a cliffhanger where the chief of these gumshoes says, hello, gumshoes, and instructs them on their mission to track down the master criminal now going under the alias Carmen Sandiego. Oh, okay. I, I do know what you're doing. It, this is where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. Yeah, right? the, yeah. It wasn't really that well known here, but I, know, I, I should say I know what this show is purely because of Saturday Night Live, because uh, Kate McKinnon did a thing about um, Kellyanne Conway, oh. where in the world is Kellyanne Conway. They did, they did a spoof where it was where in the world is Kellyanne Conway. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, this, this was a kid's TV show, wasn't Yes, it? it was. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. Yeah, I apologize. Okay, so I, I didn't okay. think about how it would be so obscure. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it was this great TV show where um, there were these, these kids who were becoming these gumshoes and they would track down this master criminal who was always stealing things like the Eiffel Tower or the Mount Rushmore or something. Where were they storing them? <laughs> I don't even know. I think she maybe had some underground hideout <laughs> or something. Yeah. It's a bit large Ma- Mount, Mount Rushmore. Yeah. <laughs> an underground hideout. That's an operation right there. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. You need a lot of helicopters, I think. Some drills, some jackhammers. Yeah. So is this going to be played like a children's TV show, like an educational TV show with Amelie? Or is it more like a film inspired by Carmen Sandiego? I, I was thinking more inspired by Carmen Sandiego. And I, I feel like the sort of whimsical fairy tale nature of this film could lend itself to, you know, the kind of magical realism of stealing monuments that powered the, the kids show. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. But it could lead into, you know, like a series or it could be a backdoor pilot where you could teach kids about things. Geography. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still really caught up on how the logistics of Audrey Tattoo stealing Mark the Rushmore. Eiffel, the yeah. Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower. Yeah. I'm trying to picture the scene. It's, uh... But I mean, this, I mean, I guess if any film could make, make you believe it, it would be Amelie. Like, they, they would probably find some kind of way. Like, mm-hmm. There is a lot of magical realism in the original film. Mm-hmm. So I imagine maybe yeah. some like boring machines, some like tunnelers coming up from the bottom and it just like... <laughs> Just falls down into the ground. I like that we've all kind of gone into a direction in which Amelie is somewhat of a villain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the thread that's running for this. Like. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, we're such cynical, cynical people. <laughs> cool. Is that it? That's it. Yes. Okay. I like it. I think that's definitely workable. I can imagine that. Absolutely. Harry, have you got any questions? Or No, but it's, it's got legs. It's definitely got legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And unlimited storage, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Master criminal. Maybe she has like a moon base or something that she flies her monuments to. Mm. Oh, now we're talking. Does yeah. she have any accomplices? Uh, ooh, good question. Hmm. Maybe like some of the other characters from yeah. the film come along on the ride. Yeah, I feel something. like maybe she could draw them in. Maybe she could even find a spot for Nino. Who becomes her like mm. sniveling concubine or something? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it, it could be like a, ends up being almost like uh, Doctor Evil in Austin Powers. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely imagining the character of Amelie in some kind of underground layer with all the other characters like the hypochondriac and the stalker and the widow and the painter, mm-hmm. all in black body suits, yeah. kind of, you know, being like typical henchmen mm-hmm. and helping over evil schemes. I think there's definitely yeah, maybe we I can we see could that, even go they're... full crossover with Austin Powers and she can go bald and get a cat and <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm absolutely on board with that. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> cool. But all, all in French still. Yes. Just to make it very, very French. Yes. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, great stuff. So um, should we get some listener submissions? Go right ahead. Cool. Okay, so we had a few. So these are some of the submissions from our listeners about this film. First one is from Ben Stevens, who says, she loses the ability to speak and fucks a fish man. What? Oh my god! Oh, this is this is a reference to the film The Shape of oh, Water. Okay. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it, it it felt familiar to me. I didn't I didn't know where from yeah. though. <laughs> I guess I guess because Sally Hawkins looks a bit like Audrey Tattoo. Yeah, I guess yeah, they've yeah. got a similar kind of whimsical kind of fairyland vibe. So I like that. I thought that was good. Joe Herman said, "Amelie gets a time machine, goes back to Henry VIII, and helps him with his marital issues, and rewrites the entire history of the Western Hemisphere." <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Asobi Detora just says she sees a therapist. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Gina Radcliffe said she becomes an insufferable Instagram celebrity. Oh, that does sound likely. Oh, God, yeah. She, she does she, seem Instagrammy. She's got a good selfie face. She does, mm-hmm. yeah. And there is that whole run of at the beginning where she takes the pictures as a child and then that evil oh, neighbor yeah. tells her that she's causing accidents, which seems twisted. Again, that, was, that was super mm-hmm. dark. 
I liked her revenge, though, which again felt very Matilda when she you sat know, on the ceiling. Like. True, but I'd have liked to have seen the film where she can just cause disasters by taking a photo or something. Ooh. Yeah, that seems... Like yeah. Bruce Almighty, but uh, Amelie Almighty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, she's some kind of, like, it's some kind of Marvel villain or something. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Regina says, Amel Wee. He says, much like Aliens, there's now many more of her. There's, like, there's yeah. multiple Amelies running around the mm-hmm. world. You've got to go big for a sequel, baby. <laughs> so I guess it's, it's a world populated by multiple Amelies, I guess. Can we get James Cameron <laughs> sure. to direct? I'm sure he's not busy. <laughs> he's not doing anything. <laughs> no. Um, Alex Gradit says he's skipping straight to Amel 3. <laughs> so you could spell that Amel, Amel with the 3, or you could have A-M-3-L-I-E, depending on mm-hmm. what you prefer. Mm-hmm. Nick Roseblade says, Amelie and Nino stay together, get married, have children, and get stuck in the banality of Parisian married life in 2018. Just as their marriage is looking like it's about to fall apart, the Cloverfield monster's French cousin rocks up, and they have to fight not only for their marriage, but for their lives. Ooh. <laughs> nice. So that, that took a turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Blokebusters, at Blokebusters, said, Barmily, which is a remake, but populated entirely by stop-motion sheep. Ooh. Okay. Claymation uh-huh. sheep. With, like, Ardman animation? Yes, they said basically an arm and anime. So Sean the Sheep basically mm-hmm. meets Amelie. So Amelie the Sheep. Mm-hmm. Very good. And finally, Media Realness at Media Realness said, Amelie too, never say die. Amelie and Nino accidentally fall back in time and decide they must save their beloved Lady Diana. And in the process, they'd uncover a deep conspiracy behind her death. So, mm. so yeah, those are our listener submissions. Some interesting ones there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it. Like those it are lot. great. They could inspire entire movie series. Some of these. Mm. Yeah, I think the running thread of this film is that there's a lot of directions you could take it. Yeah, it's probably the mark of a good film. It's, yeah, um, yeah. So cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Nate. Mm, thank you. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Do you want to just once again just give a quick plug for Think Outside the Box set for anyone who might be interested in checking you guys Absolutely. out? Absolutely. Yeah, we're a, we're a podcast that takes a look at musical artists that have attained some degree of uh, notoriety, maybe, or prominence, but most people, like myself, have never listened to. And so you can join us as we discover what people see in artists like Garth Brooks or Insane Clown Posse. Or Alanis Morissette, who I think we're doing next. It's a little uh, Ooh, I'm excited for that. And uh, we tackle it with sort of a a combination of cultural criticism and silliness and lots of silly jokes. Now, for Alanis Morissette, a bit of a sidebar, are you going to start with Jagged Little Pearl or are you going to go right in with the early teen pop Canadian albums that nobody's ever heard? Good question. I I think we will just start with her first album, which is that Jagged Little Pill? Well, she had two albums that were released exclusively in Canada before Jack oh. Lopez, which are like Paula Abdul style uh-huh. kind of teen pop, which is so not the Alanis that the world came to know. It's really hilarious. Like, there's some really funny, like, sub Paula Abdul early 90s pop stuff that she did before she hooked up with Glenn Ballard. I'd really like it if you started with those. <sighs> yes, they, absolutely. They, they, we'll have to, I think we'll. I don't know how easy they are to get hold of, but. Uh, Ooh, yeah. I would love. I think we're going to have to start with those. That sounds great. <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm actually quite a fan of Alanis, so I'm really looking forward to that awesome. to, to that season. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, yeah, do check it out. It's a great podcast. I do enjoy listening to it. It's really interesting. And I, as somebody who doesn't really listen to Garth Brooks or Insane Clown Posse, I still have found lots to enjoy hearing. And it's actually made me want to listen to some, maybe not all of their work. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's it's. I, yeah, I think it's an I think we should we'll finish with like mixtapes of some of the, the highlights of those uh, artists' catalogs, so you don't have to maybe listen to all of them. Yeah, like a Spotify playlist. Yeah, or exactly. Make a Spotify playlist for everyone. You, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Great. Well, okay. So that was our um, Amelie episode. If you have any sequel ideas for Amelie or any other films we've done in the past, please let us know. We are Beyond the Box Set. You can find us at beyondtheboxset.com. Our podcast is available on all good podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Podbean, and now Spotify. Uh, you can also get in touch with us on all forms of social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Beyond the Box Set. We're also on Patreon if you'd like to give us some, a little bit of support. Um, as Nate has kindly done. You can pay as much or as little as you like, and there are a whole host of bonus features, including our weekly bonus mini-episodes, our movie review series Beyond, Beyond the Box Set, and you can also pick a film for us to cover, such as Amelie, although that's now been mm-hmm. done. And, uh, and yeah, or you can even be a character in one of our sequels if mm-hmm. you'd like, and uh, we'll have more perks and incentives coming down the mm-hmm. line, I'm sure. We also have merchandise available on tpublic.com. Just search Beyond the Box Set. And is there anything else I've not Well, covered? I would like to say I'd like to vouch for the quality of some of those bonus episodes. If people oh, haven't gotten around to them yet, there's some very good review episodes of some of these these movies that really make me want to see them that, you know, maybe some movies I hadn't heard of before. Oh, great. Thank um, you very yeah, much. That's really nice to hear. So that's this week covered. So we'll be back again next week with, would you believe it, another guest episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we really need some alone time. It's starting yeah. to get a little bit much. But um, yeah, but next week we're actually going to be joined by Larry and Paul from BBC Radio Leeds. 
we live in a t- city called Leeds in England and our local radio station has hooked up with us. So the two DJs and, and comedians are going to join us and we are going to be discussing the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. No way. Ooh, that's wait exciting. Minute, wait a minute. You didn't tell me they were comedians. Yeah. Oh, we're screwed, John. We're screwed. <laughs> we'll rise to their level. We're going to be so boring in comparison. <laughs> I have faith in us, Harry. I think we can do this. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're also going to be going on the BBC Radio Leeds Saturday afternoon radio show to promote the show, which is pretty cool. It's not a nice little... Uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about plug-in that. for us. So. Great. So, yeah, thanks again, Nate, for joining us. And please join us next week for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Thank cool. you. So, bye. See you later, bye. Nate. Bye. Thank you bye. so much. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Bye. bye.